Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead as we look at this section and see what it is you would have us to see from it and, and learn. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, 2 King. how about 1 Kings? <laughs> Chapter 5, uh, starting at verse 1. Uh, we've been leading up to the idea that Solomon has been blessed with great wisdom. We saw last week the, how much uh, food it took to supply his, his daily provisions. And so now we're going to go into uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. We're going to look at him starting to build the temple uh, of God. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants unto Solomon, for he had heard that they had anointed him king in the room of his father, for Hiram was ever a lover of David. And Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, You know that David my father could not build the house unto the name of the Lord his God for the wars which were about him on every side until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God hath given me rest on every side so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrent. And behold, I purpose to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God as the Lord spoke unto David my father, saying, your son, whom I will set upon your throne in your room, he shall build a house unto my name. Now therefore command you that they hew me cedar trees out of Lebanon, and my servants shall be with your servants, and unto you will I give hire for your servants, according to all you shall appoint. For you know that there is not among us any that can, that can skill to hew timber like unto the Sidonites. All right, so here we are looking at Solomon's meeting with Hiram. Uh, Hiram, the king of Tyre. Uh, Hiram in 2 Samuel uh, 5.11 was, helped David and supplied the lumber for David's palace. All right, so he already has this habit of helping out the, the building projects. And in uh, 1 Chronicles 14, uh, 4, uh, 1, he also talks about that. In 1 Kings 7, King, uh, King 7, it says that Hiram's going to provide metal workers to help build, the, the, forge the stuff of the temples, uh, the temple. And in uh, 1 Kings 10, it talks about Hiram providing sailors and sailors to sail Solomon's fleet. All right? So Solomon is very dependent upon Hiram for skilled labor. All right? So we see this on it, and... Hiram hears of Solomon's promotion and he sends his emissaries there to see Solomon and, you know, let him know how happy he is. You know, we see this even in our day. A new ruler is elected or, or a new king or monarch comes into places and they, each of the uh, nations will make a phone call, send a telegraph, you know, send an embassy, you know, depending on how important the country is, you'll get a higher level all the way up to the president going someplace or the vice president and we send emissaries this is what Hiram's done he says okay Solomon is now the new king of Israel my friend David's dead I'm going to send emissaries to him and say congratulations good you know welcome and anything anything I can do to help type embassy to him and so he says you know he heard this and then Solomon writes this letter and it's kind of an interesting letter because it's half demand, half request, and a lot of flattery. 
All right? Solomon knows how to flatter people. Okay? Also, as we look at this, as we look at Solomon's good years in his reign, he's gotten wisdom from God, but you know what he's done mostly? He's just obeying his dad's commands. <laughs> All right? While he's obeying his dad's commands that were set for him, he's doing a really good job. Later on, he's going to fall further and further away from God you know, through little steps. And we've been talking about this as we've gone along. He keeps letting in little things to cause him problems. And part of his little problems is going to be his reliance on Hiram. Hiram is not a believer. Okay? When God tells us not to be unequally yoked, it's not just for marriage. It's for partnerships. It's for our best friends. If the people we hang out with all the time are not saved, we are making a bad position. If we go into business with an unsaved person, you're asking for trouble. Because you're going to hopefully want to run it God, the way God says to, and your partner who isn't on God's side is going to want to run it the way the world says to run things. And those two do not mix very well. All right? So we want to be careful. Same thing with who we spend all of our time with. If we spend our time with the lost world all the time, they're going to affect us. Now, that doesn't mean we don't spend any time with the lost world. If we don't spend time with the lost world, we have nobody to witness to. All right, it's real hard to witness to saved people. It's a really big waste of time. You know, hey, you're saved, let me tell you about Jesus. Doesn't do much good. So we need to be out in the world, but the world should never be our best friends and the one we spend all of our time with. All right, so it's very critical. And Solomon is going to attach himself pretty closely to Hiram. Now, Hiram's not a bad, bad guy, but he's not, a, he's not a follower of God either. Okay, so we have some problems that will be set up, and he's going to help Solomon a lot, but he's also going to be part of that downfall for Solomon. And he says in uh, verse 3, You know that my father, David my father, could not build a house unto the name of the Lord his God, for wars were about him on every side. So we look at this, and this is referencing back to 2 Samuel. All right, if you remember in 2 Samuel, David called Nathan to him and said, I want to build a temple to God. Nathan's immediate answer, he didn't go to God, he didn't pray, is, hey, David, that sounds like a really good idea. Go and, do, go and do what you want. As Nathan is leaving the palace, God says, go back and tell David he can't build the house. Again, if you remember that, God goes, you know, I never asked for a temple. I don't care for a temple. And by the way, David, you can't build it because of all the blood on your hands and the other issues in David's life. Right? The, bath, the, the murder of Uriah, the, the adultery with Bathsheba, you know, all the other, the other things that David had done. And so Saul, you know, Nathan this is one of those interesting places for a man of God. He spoke before he talked to God and then had to go back and say, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I, uh, David, I didn't give you the right, I didn't give you God's answer. I gave you, I gave you my answer. So kind of a notice to us, be careful what we say. <laughs> when somebody's asking us for a spiritual answer, be careful what we say. Because it can, it, can, it can be something that we have to go back and uh, ask for forgiveness for and make corrections for. Take a moment. Pray. Some answers are pretty simple. You know, when you're dealing with somebody saying, well, you know, I think I need to divorce my, my husband because I just don't like him. It's a pretty easy answer, especially if they're both believers and there's no adultery. Uh, sorry, wrong answer. 
There's, not, there's no prayer in that. There's no, well, maybe possibly if we think about this long enough, we'll find some good reason for it. No. If it's not adultery, the answer is no. You're talking to a teenager who wants to get married or an older person wanting to get married to an unsaved person, saying, well, you really think God's telling me? Nope, that's not, that's not, you know, there's certain things that are very easy. There's most of what we have to deal with that's not easy. Well, what should I do in this situation? And, you know, it's not a right or wrong, and it's hard to find anything in the scriptures. It's like, let's pray about it and see what God says, and then help try to figure it out. Because there's a lot of places that are hard to make decisions for. You know, especially when people have lived a very bad life and have made a lot of mistakes and living under consequences, and now all of a sudden they want to make things right with God, you know, and they have kids with multiple, multiple uh, uh, people, and it's, okay, you have obligations to all those kids and each of those people, but how do you work it out? And if we had done it God's way, it would have been an easy, easy answer. One, one, one in one is very easy to work out. One in three and one in four or two in five, you know, it starts to be very difficult to figure out how do we apply God's words to this situation. And it becomes a very hard thing to do. And this is why it's very important for us to give godly wisdom to people and make godly decisions because it's easier to handle making the right decision. I talked to so many of the guys at the prison who, who just don't know how to stay out of trouble. They literally just don't know how. They don't have a cognizant idea that because they do something wrong, there's consequences. You know, and we need to really, the more we realize that, the less bad decisions we're going to make. Okay? The more we realize that there are consequences, and I'm not going to like the consequences, the easier it is to do the right thing. And we talk about this a lot. Everything we do has consequences. And usually we'll think, well, you know, I'll think of all the consequences I can possibly think about this problem, and I think, okay, I can handle those consequences. What usually hits us is nothing about what we thought about. And even if it is what we thought about, we never thought it was as bad as it really is, and we live with those consequences that are always worse than we, we think they're going to be, if we take the time to even think about it, which most of the time we don't. We just say, well, I'm just going to go do this. And the consequences will be harmful. So we, we look at this and he says, you know, my father couldn't do this. You know that this happened. And he, he had adversaries on all sides. He goes, but, okay? And I say, well, anytime you see but, you want to go, okay, what's changing? David had problems. He had adversaries. He had battles. And we do. We recognize he had battles, battles from Saul, battles from Absalom, battles from the Philistines, battles from everybody. Finally, toward the end of his life, he had gotten some peace. Solomon, we looked at last week or two weeks ago, he is ruling all of, almost all of Israel that he's supposed to have. From the Euphrates River all the way down to Egypt, from the Mediterranean River to over the Transjordan area, and he is ruling all of it, either directly or as having them giving tribute. The only time in all of Israel's history that they owned all their land, or almost all their land. Now, they will own all of it during the millennial kingdom when Jesus reigns, but he'll own the whole world. So they'll, they'll, they'll have all of their land as well. But, you know, he is as close as Israel has ever been to owning all the land that God said is yours. He told Abraham, everywhere that your foot treads is yours. Well, he started in Euphrates. 
All right? He started walking along the Euphrates, so everything on the other side of the Euphrates is his too. All right? And then he comes down and wanders around all that area, including Egypt, all right? including all that order. So all of that area belongs to Israel by God's promise. Solomon owned, was the closest king of all of Israel's kings to ever possess everything that Israel's supposed to have. So he says, but now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrent. Now the word adversary here in, uh, in the Hebrew is very interesting. The word is Satan. Okay. He has no adversaries, nobody who is oppressing him. Satan's title literally is the accuser. Right? He goes before God in heaven and accuses us. He goes to the throne room of heaven. And you know, we kind of think sometimes Satan has no access. He has access to the throne room of heaven. But everybody has access to the throne room in a king. That was the public place of a palace. That was the public place of, a, of the king. You may still need an appointment to get there, but that was where they met and committed, made their judgments. The people would come to the throne and present their cases to the king. Satan still in heaven gets to go to the throne room of heaven to accuse Christians and everybody else in the world. <laughs> but primarily he's accusing Christians and saying, God, I want to do more. I want to I I test them. I want to try them. You know, God, it's your fault that they're blessing you because you're, you're protecting them. Same thing he told, told God about Job. Of course he worships you, God. You, you don't let anything happen to him. You know, and so God said, okay, now you can go do some things. You know, uh, but he says, I have no adversaries, I have no accusers, I have no oppressors, and there are no evil happenings or occurrences. Solomon is at a time of peace. And most of his time as king is in peace. As wisdom, people are coming to him. He, money, is, um, all the gems and jewels and silver are not that, not that precious. And we're we're going to read that dust, uh, silver is as valuable as dust in Solomon's kingdom. You know, maybe we should go back in time and go get some of his dust <laughs> and bring it back this way, you know. Uh, but he goes, you know, silver? You want to buy something with silver? Go, well, might as well just go out and grab a handful of dust. You know, we can't even fathom that, but that's how much silver he had. He says, There's sil silver is nothing. You know, gold wasn't further down the road. I mean, he's building a temple out of gold and covering everything with gold. You walk on the gold, you... You, you're using gold utensils, everything. Uh, he, he's using gold shields as decorations later on. Gold wasn't much more valuable to, in his kingdom. That's how much wealth he had. And we can't picture that. You know, having so much wealth that what we think is precious is not. But he's also a picture of heaven. In heaven, God makes the streets out of gold. He makes the, the gates of the, the, out of something that looks like pearl. He's got gems all over the building material and says, hey, you think, you think this stuff's precious? You know, I, I'm using it for building material. Now, what God thinks is precious is us and souls. And he has us as great, as great value. He holds us in such high, high, high esteem and value that all that physical stuff is like, yeah, it's just stuff. We're going we're gonna to use it to build your houses. We're going to use it to decorate your houses, but it's not, a, not of any value. You know, we think about this. 
if we as Christians really start gathering, getting hold of what God looks as valuable, us, his children, that is what he sees as valuable. And yet we spend most of our time chasing stuff and things and status instead of what can we do to help each other and build up and edify one another. You know, and we need to be very careful about that. And it's not saying that the stuff is unimportant in this physical world. It is important. Okay? It is important to have money to pay your bills and to, to, have, to have the necessities of life because God will provide it, but unfortunately, it usually costs money to get it. You know, yes, God can have people out of the kindness of their hearts start giving it to you, but you know, if you're always receiving and never giving or never standing on your own feet, people eventually stop helping you out because they feel used, rightfully so. And so God knows that we need the stuff. And he goes, I'm going to give it to you. Use it correctly. Use it correctly to support his kingdom, to support others. And here's where Solomon is. And he says, I've got no enemies. I've got no, nothing's happening. And then he says, and behold, I purpose to build the house unto the name of the Lord my God as the Lord spoken to David, my father. Because it's time to build the house to the name of God, the reputation of God. You know, and this is, we've talked about this. Name is very important. And we have lost the value of a name in our generation. Okay? It used to be people would go, you know, you need to keep your name. That's all that you have. If you lose your name, you don't have anything. We've lost a lot of that in our generation. But here he's saying, God's name. I'm going to build a house, a temple worthy of God's name. You know, we need to live worthy of the name of Christ. And that's a pretty, pretty hefty uh, goal to make. Okay, Not to bring dishonor to his name. When I make my decisions, my, my decisions should be based on, am I honoring God? Am I lifting God up? And this is important for us to be able to lift him up and just to say, I'm living in a way that is going to honor God. And we talk about in many, many churches, and it's really sad, they'll talk about praying in Jesus' name and what they mean at the end of their prayer, in the name of Jesus, I pray. Well, you know what? If that prayer has nothing to do with the reputation of God, you have not prayed in the name of God. Okay? Because you, you can just tag those words on and it doesn't mean a thing. God, I need, I need a Lamborghini and I need a 20-bedroom house and I need this in the name of Jesus is not... And God's going to go, what do you need all that stuff for? Now, if you can honestly have a good reason why you need that stuff and it honors God, right. it can be a valuable prayer. But most of those things are not going to be there for honoring God. If you're going, I need a 20-bedroom house because I want to build a ranch and, 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 and help everybody in need and everything, God would probably say, oh, good idea, let's, let's get you a 20-bedroom house. I can't imagine why you might need a Lamborghini to honor God, but that's another story altogether. You know, <laughs> but you get the point of what I'm saying. There may be a good reason to have some really nice stuff. All right? uh, George Mueller needed very large places because he was ministering to thousands of kids, orphaned kids that were just abandoned on the streets. He needed large houses. He needed large gifts of food to be able to feed these kids. And he prayed for those. And he got them. 
Not, not because he was saying, God, I need $10,000 uh, 10, to, to spend on myself this month. I needed to take care of these kids. And God gave it to him, and he spent the money on the kids, and they were blessed by it. So yes, there are times when God's going to answer some very big prayers. But it all has to be to honor him, not to honor us. And this is what Solomon is saying. I want to build a, I want to build a house that's going to honor God. And he's going to build a temple that it becomes one of the wonders of the ancient world. Okay, He's going to build something that is just, you know, when you read the descriptions of it, it's just bizarre when you read them. And he says, I'm purposing, I determined that I'm going to do this, and all because God told my father that I was going to do it. Okay, so he's also honoring David in the process. Okay, he wants to honor God, but he also wants to honor the prophecy that was given to David and do what David is asked him to do. Remember in our first three, a couple chapters, he gets rid of Joab, he gets rid of Shimei, he gets rid of all these people that David says, okay, I couldn't get rid of them, but Solomon, you go get rid of them. Kind of an interesting thought process, but, you know, I, Solomon, I wasn't strong enough to get rid of them, but the first thing you need to do is get rid of them. Uh, they're, they're old now, get rid of them. Uh, but he goes, build this house. Now, verse 6 is kind of an interesting statement. Now, therefore, I command you that they hew to me cedar trees out of Lebanon. These guys are equals. They're kings. Okay, but I think it's more that he wasn't necessarily commanding. He goes, you've asked, you've asked what you can do. Here's what I really want you to do. Okay, I don't think he's trying to order Hiram at all. Okay, I think the, the command is not really, kind of a strong word here. Because he also goes, and my servants will go with you. Okay, you send your guys out and I will, and I will send my servants out to help you. All right, so they go out there and... Then he goes, and I will give you the hire for your servants according to all that you shall appoint. Wages. Whatever you, whatever you want me to pay your servants, I will pay. Now, this is a pretty open-ended statement. He's got a lot of trust in Hiram not to cheat him. Okay? Hiram treated his dad fairly, and he's basically just saying, Hiram, you just tell me what you want. I want the best. You've got the best lumber. You've got the best best people to plane the logs and, and, and fix them up. I want the best. You tell me what it's going to charge. You tell me what, and it's, it's fully that open. Just tell me, you know, I, I'm hiring your people. You just tell me what, you're going, you tell me what it's going to cost. <laughs> it's true too. He doesn't have to, you know, he, he's, got, he's got whatever he wants. And, and David's put away a fortune for the, for the temple anyway. Uh, I've heard somebody say that the amount that David put away was up to a billion dollars in today's terms. Okay, he piled gold and silver and gems. He, David really wanted to build God's house and he was very wealthy and he had, he had allocated a lot of his wealth to the temple and he didn't get to build it. So Solomon is getting wealthy in his own right, plus he's starting with a huge, huge uh, war chest for the temple. So you're right, and he's not really worrying too much, but I also think he's, he is so confident in the relationship with Hiram that he knows Hiram's not going to, he's really sure Hiram's not going to cheat him. All right. So he says, ask what you want. I'll pay it. And he goes, and then he gets into a little bit of uh, flattery for, you know, that there is not any among us with the skill of timber and wood as you, as you, as you guys. <laughs> All right. And they did have a reputation. These guys are the best 
in the, in the ancient world, they are the best with lumber. And apparently everything else, because Hi Solomon hires his, his stone cutters and his, and his uh, metal workers and his sailors. Uh, so he's going, hey, there's no, there's no equal to you, so I want, I want the best. And we, you know, we hear people, you know, I'm willing to pay for the best. You know, and they go out and they find the best and they go on. I don't care what it's going to cost me because I want the best. And this is what Solomon, he's giving, he's giving Hiram a little bit of flattery back. Uh, you know, Hiram went to him, gave him his, you know, thank you, welcome, and all this. And now he's sending him back with the same type of message saying, hey, you know, yep, you, you guys had the best. And I really want some more lumber. You supplied the lumber for, to, to dad for his, for his palace. Now I want lumber for God's house. Probably it supplied the lumber for Solomon's palace too. Yeah, we did, it does, I don't remember him saying that, but probably did. Solomon's going to want the best. He, he would have gone to the best even for his own house. All right, verse 7. And it came to pass when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day which hath given unto David a wise son over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have considered the things which you sent to me for, and I will do all that you desire concerning timber of cedar and concerning timber of fir. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon into the sea, and I will convey them by sea and floats into the place that you shall appoint me, and will cause them to be discharged there, and you shall receive them, and you shall accomplish my desire in giving food for my household. So Hiram gave Solomon cedar trees and fir trees according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 measures of wheat for food to his household and 20,000 measures of pure oil. Thus gave Solomon to Hiram year by year. And the Lord gave wisdom, Solomon wisdom, and he promised, as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two made a league together. All right, so Hiram's answer to Solomon is just as pleasant. He sends back and he says, I have considered, I have agreed to everything that you have, that you have asked for. All right. Uh, so he says, I've considered the things which you sent and I will do, I will accomplish your desires concerning the cedar and the fir trees. Okay. He says, you want lumber, Solomon? No problem. I've got, I have got lumber. And at the time there was lots of lumber. The, the cedar trees of Lebanon were the famous trees in that day. All right, they, they had a lumber industry. They, they, they were experts at lumber. And he says, my servants will bring, the, bring them down. They will take them from Lebanon to the sea, and I will convey them by rafts. So literally what they did is they took the lumber, took it down to the sea, lashed it all together, ran it down the water, waterfront to wherever Solomon wanted it, and handed it over to him to be able to carry it from the sea back to Jerusalem. Uh, that was not a mean feat. Coming down from Lebanon was pretty easy. Solomon had to take it uphill. Jerusalem is uphill from the sea by a long ways. <laughs> so he had to go 100, 150 miles, all of it uphill <laughs> to get to where he's building this. He's also going to have to bring all the stones that they quarry uh, up to Jerusalem. No matter how you get to Jerusalem, it's uphill. It sits on a very tall hill. All right? Uh, so no matter where you are in Israel, you go uphill to get to Jerusalem. Uh, so this is, this is a big deal. And um, so he says, I'm going to get it to you. 
I'm going to get it to you the easy way. I'm going to take and float it down the, out to sea, and I'm going to bring it down to you by sea. Just tell me where you want it. All right? And he says, and all I want is food. All right? Just, just give me food. Now, I don't know if he told Solomon how much food he wanted or Solomon determined it. We don't know. There might have been some negotiation on that. We don't, we don't know on that. And it says in verse 10, So Hiram gave Solomon cedar trees and fir trees according to all his desire. So all that Solomon wanted, Hiram provided. And his wages, 20,000 measures of wheat. That is approximately 125 bushels of wheat per year. Make a lot of bread with 125 bushels of bread, uh, wheat. Yeah. All right? And he, uh, and he sent him um, 20 th measures of pure oil, approximately 1,100 gallons of oil. Wow. wow. All right? Huh? 120,000 gallons. Yeah. So a lot of oil, a lot of, lot of wheat. He could at least feed his, feed his palace with this. Oh, yeah. uh, so he is getting paid very well for his lumber. I would assume, I haven't done the math on it, but that's a, that's a, lot, of, a lot of stuff, okay? A lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of food going back. So Hiram's happy. He's getting all the food he wants, and all he's having to do is cut down trees in his, pro, in his kingdom to send them over to Solomon. And it's going to take, I think it was six years to build this, build this uh, temple. So he's paying this out for six years. So a lot, a lot of food being transferred out of Israel into uh, uh, Tyre. So, and then it says, the Lord gave wisdom, Solomon the wisdom as he promised, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon. So his, northern, his northwest border is protected. He's in, got a good friend up there. All right? And they make a league, they make an agreement, a peace agreement. All right? So we have here a big union between them. And it all starts because Hiram and David were friends. All right? uh, Hiram has been supporting David all along, supported him with lumber, supported him with all of this stuff. Now, the, the problem Solomon's going to have in all of this, and we're going to read, you know, we'll read about it later, is the tax rate for Solomon's work and, and building program was high. All right? He was taxing the people at very high rates. And the split in the kingdom will come when, when Solomon's son takes the throne, the people send an emissary to, uh, to him and say, you know, would you, you know, you're, we have very high taxes. Could you just think maybe of reducing our tax load a little bit? You know, fairly reasonable request. All the el senior elders said, you know, that might be a good idea. You really look good. You'll look, the people will be happy with you if you cut down, if you cut their taxes and make it, make it a little easier on them. Well, now his friend said, you know, you just tell them, you think my father was bad? <laughs> you just wait. And he increased their taxes and lost 10, 10 tribes of Israel in the process. All right. Uh, so Solomon has a problem. He is building all this stuff, and it costs money. Even in the day of a king, it costs money. Somebody has to pay for the stuff. Even if it's taking your own people and making them work in your own land that's keeping them from producing products, you still 
cost your kingdom something because they are no longer working to pay taxes. So there's, there's some cost always. And if you're buying it from other nations, uh, they're not going to take the IOU in that day. You had, to, you had to pay. And they're going to make you pay you know, a reasonable rate. And you have to get your money from someplace. And governments never have made money. They haven't in the past. And they still are not making money in the present. They take their money from the people. Now, it's good. I mean, God honors it. I mean, there's, there's a need. We, need. we need an army. We need navies. We need certain protections. But there gets to be a point where governments go way beyond what's needed and start getting selfish and greedy and bloated. And Solomon's kingdom is going to get that way. He's going to start just really taxing the people to the point where they don't, you know, they're not happy because there's just such a high tax. And there, are the, there is that point. And then you have to be able to, as a government, to prove that what you're doing for the people is necessary and needed to justify the taxes. We have socialist countries around the, around the world that are, that are charging 65% tax. So 65% of everything you go make goes to the government. Now, in those countries, they also give you just about everything you need. You give you free medical. They give you, you know, low, low cost stuff. But you're giving all your money to the government to get it. But it's your choice what, the, what you get, yes. You, know, you, you don't have total freedom. So, you know, we sometimes think we're bad at about our 30, 35% that some of us are at, you know. It's, you know but governments have always done that, always will, because governments need finances to produce what they produce, you know, to give what they give. They don't produce anything, all right? And this is where Solomon is at as he's doing that. And he's very wise and he's making his, making his agreement with Hiram. And, you know, in, in both cases, we didn't see any. Now, I'm sure there were some negotiations going on. I mean, it was, okay, you're going to give me lumber. We're going give to you, give you food. And I'm sure there was emissaries going back and forth saying, okay, how much lumber do you need? And how much food am, am I going to get in return? I mean, there's a lot of lot of back and forth on this. It wasn't just, okay, uh, I'm gonna, you're going to send me a lot of lumber and I'm going to send you as much food as I want and we'll, and we'll all be happy. No, that is not the way things were done. They were both wise men and they negotiated this out so that they both felt it was fair. All right. Uh, and that's another point that we need to be careful. Just because we're doing something for God and even dealing with other godly people, we still want to make sure that we negotiate a fair agreement on both sides. And when I say negotiate, I don't mean, you know, that we have, okay, everybody just takes, takes a little, loses a little. I am a firm believer in the process that everybody needs to win. All right? And there's usually, almost always, is a deal that can be struck where everybody wins if, you, if, you, if you're not trying to be too greedy in the process. Uh, I was sitting in a class one time and we were trying to figure, we had a, groups of three of us trying to figure out how we were going to split the resources up. Um, you know, and I started listening to what everybody needed and realized that everybody needed a different part of the resources and that everybody could get everything they needed and not have, you know, every, but as I was listening to other groups, they were all going to do, you know, we're going to give and take, you know, I'm going to give, you know, and most of them decided to split the resources, you know, one third, you know, one third for each group, you know, and, and I'm going, you know, people, you've got to have a win-win. Look for your win-win and this is where they're at. They're looking for a win-win. Hiram wanted food. Solomon had food to give him. Solomon wanted trees. <laughs> and 
And Hiram had plenty of trees to give him, so they both got exactly what they wanted. It probably took a while to hammer out how much, how much food for how much trees, but that is not a problem because they both got what they wanted. And for us, we need to be, as we're dealing with people, looking for what is a win-win, all right? Because we hire people, we agree to pay them a certain amount for a certain amount of work, and we don't want to feel bad later on that we paid all this money out you know, if we got the service that, that was agreed to. If you agree to take a job and do something at a certain rate, you do the job for the rate that, you, that you've agreed to. Whether you think it's fair afterwards or not is beside the point. You, you made your agreement at what you thought was a fair price at the start. And you know, as an employer, you may not think you're getting a good deal out of it, but that's, you, you stick with where you're at and you make a good deal for both people. And we do this and we help each other out. You know, there will come a time in our, in our churches where we will be like the first century church. In Jerusalem, the church helped each other mostly because for a Jew to become a Christian meant that nobody would come to their business. They were dead to their family. They were dead to other Jews. Nobody would, they might have had a thriving business and they became a Christian. And all of a sudden, nobody came to their business. They still made the perfect, the good materials. They still did this so the, Jew, the Christians came together and helped each other out. All right? There may come a time when we, as Christians, may have to do just that again. Help each other out. This person has skills in one area, and this person has skills in another area, and we may have to come together and say, okay, you're the hunter, you're the farmer, you know, you're the, you're the organizer, and we, be, we will be each using our skills to the best of our ability for each other to survive. And it, I don't know when that can be, but it can be just around the corner. We're seeing right now how much oppression is coming toward Christians, and it's only going to get worse. And it will not surprise me if there's a time when Christians cannot work. Not because, of, you know, not because there's a law saying that Christians can't work, but a law saying, well, you won't do certain things that I expect you to do as a Christian, so you can't, I'm not hiring you. Okay? And that's probably coming very soon. We're seeing the lawsuits against Christian companies who won't, who won't violate their faith in the face of people, and the laws are just around the corner to come out against it. The hate speech laws that are, are patterned after Canada and England that have put pastors in prison because they spoke what the God says are the same patterns we were told that they'll never be used against you as Christians. Uh-huh, right. Okay. We as Christians, if we want to stand up for Christ, will probably be in prison or underground you know, to be not out front. It's coming. It's been in the past. It is coming. Everything, all the signs are out there. Christians in democracies go to prison for saying what is considered hate speech in most of the world. And it's being pushed in America. You know, being pushed in different courts. So far, they've been losing. They're not going to keep losing forever. All right? It is going to be soon basically against the law to be a Christian. You you know, and we need to be careful because what you're hearing, if you listen closely to what's being out there, they will say you had the freedom to worship. We no longer have the freedom of religion. All right? And what they mean by that is what you do in your church, you can do whatever you want in your church. But as soon as you step outside of your church, you have no more freedom. You cannot bring your 
religion into the workplace. You cannot bring your religion into the schools. You cannot bring your religion anywhere else. You have the freedom to do whatever you want inside the walls of your church, but don't bring it outside. Listen closely to what they say when you listen to them. You're going to hear them say you have the freedom to worship. You no longer have the freedom of religion. And even that is, it was pushed too far because the Constitution says that Congress shall make no laws limiting the freedom of religion. It doesn't even have anything to do with us. It has everything to do with the federal government not making a law. So we were given that freedom. We can do whatever we want under the rule of freedom of religion. And they could not do anything about it. And they're pushing all kinds of laws to keep us from having freedom of religion. It's coming. We know it's coming. We've had a respite for years in America. The end of that respite is coming. And it's coming quickly. And it's going to be something that we're going to be following along and all of a sudden one day realize that we don't have any freedoms anymore. And we sold them so cheap because we didn't realize what we were losing. So be careful. And I'm not saying this to be fearful. You know, if you listen to people like Richard Warmbrandt and those people from behind the Iron Curtain, you know, those people witnessed as much as anybody else did, even though they were going to, knowing that they were going to go to prison. They still went out and witnessed. And they went to prison for it. And we can't even in America get people to witness when it doesn't cost prison. You know, they're afraid of being teased. Afraid of being made fun of. You know, what a sad state that we live in when we can't go out and witness when there's really no consequences to it. So, but get ready. The hard times are coming and I want to challenge our church to be ready. There may be a time when we cannot meet in this building, you know, in the open. We'll be meeting people's houses, sneaking into those houses to be able to hear the word of God and spend time with people. All right? Be ready. Don't, don't think that this is something that's unusual. It has happened over and over throughout history. We in America have just been really blessed for the history of our country to have freedom of religion that hasn't had the taint over it of somebody telling you how to worship and everything. It changes in the air. You can tell. And we've had a long time of having freedom. But it is changing. The courts are filled with it over and over again. And we're going to start losing some of these cases at some, at some point. It may be a little while because, because of all the nice conservative judges that have been put into place. It may, it may be another 10 or 15 years, and I hope that it is. But it is also going to change. It will change. All right, let's look at what happened here. Verse 13. And King Solomon raised a levy out of all Israel, and the levy was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in courses. A month they, they were in Lebanon, and two months they were at home. And an Edoraniram was over the levy. And Solomon had three score and 10,000 that bearer burdens, and four score thousand hewers of the mountains, besides the chief of Solomon's officers, which were over the work, 3,300 which ruled over the people that wrought the, in the work. And the king commanded that they brought great stones, costly stones, and huge stones, and laid the foundation of the house. And Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders did hew them and the stone quarriers, so they prepared lumber and stones to fit to build the house. All right, 
Solomon goes out and he, he conscripts 30,000 people of Israel to be workers. You know, now, it doesn't say he didn't pay them or anything, but he goes, you are now no longer doing what you want. You have now been drafted. 30,000 of you are drafted to, to work. And they would spend 10,000, spent a month in Lebanon, then they would spend two months at home, and then they'd go back to Lebanon, and they did this 10,000 at a time in Lebanon. So, I don't know, 30,000 people out of, his, out of his workers, not hired to be an army. These guys were to go up to Lebanon and help cut wood. All right? For one month at a time, they were sent to, to Lebanon to help cut wood. They'd come back for two months, and they'd get to go back and cut wood again for, two, for, for a month. Not too bad. You only, work, you only did the king's work for, three, for, for one month out of three, but that was for one month that you couldn't do your own job. Well, they did whatever they was they normally would do. You know, I, I own my shop, and for one month I can't, I can't do anything in my shop because I'm in, I'm in Lebanon chopping down trees. Uh, I'm, I'm a farmer. You know, hopefully you were in, not in Lebanon during the springtime of the, of the time that you were supposed to harvest your food. Or worse yet, you were up there when you were supposed to plant your field. <laughs> okay? During the spring, maybe you could have gotten some help to, to, to full of it. It was a lot harder to get people to help plant it. Now, I'm hoping that these people helped each other out. But you understand what's happening here. They've been conscripted. They have been drafted uh, for helping and laboring up there. And he says, Adarajam was over them. So he had one man that was over these, these 30,000 men. And Solomon had 70,000 that bore burdens. These guys are the ones that are going down to the sea and dragging all that wood back to Jerusalem. All right? It only took 10,000 people to cut it down with, with Hiram's people and, and drag it down to the, to the water, and it's taken him 70,000 people to drag it up to Jerusalem. All right? quite, a, quite a number of people. Solomon is building an army of laborers. Many nations didn't have an army as big as his labor pool that he is, he is conscripting here. Uh, and he, said, and he built 80,000 people that were cutting stone, hewers in the mountain. So he's got 80,000 men cutting rocks out of the rocks around him. Uh, that's, a, that's a huge army. And they needed lots of rocks because he's going to build quite a, quite, a, quite a temple. Okay, So there are a lot more rocks needed than there was lumber. And he's, then over that, he, he allocated 3,300 overseers to watch all these. Uh, let's see, what do we got? Uh, 70, 100, 150,000 workers just cutting stones and, and dragging up uh, lumber. And he puts uh, 3,000 people in charge of that. Huh? Twice as many people in charge of that. It was about a 45-to-1 ratio. Yeah. And they probably had some sub, you know, sub foremen under that. But there's, you know, one head person over 45, and then I'm sure there was sub foremen underneath that, you know, because you 45 people is a lot of people to watch. So they probably had, you know, probably groups of groups of 10 or so out there, maybe 15. So three or four groups of 10 or 15 people out there, and each of those probably had somebody that was foreman of that group. I'm sorry, I 
Yeah. There's a there's 150,000 laborers. I was thinking that was 300,000. No, no, just 3,300. Yeah, there's a 45 to 1 ratio between top dog and, and labor, and there's probably some foremen in there because you, 45 is still too many people to watch. So there would probably be some foremen, you know, you pick your best laborer to, to watch over a group of 10 or, 10 or 15, and that would be about the right, right number. So he has built an army of 150,000 laborers in Israel. He's sending 10,000 people each month to Lebanon to work. You know, he has a full army of laborers, <laughs> and he's got to pay all these guys, okay? And if he doesn't pay them, he's still paying them because of lost productivity, so he's got to pay them something to, to make it worthwhile. And they've been conscripted, but they're still going to, there's still a cost involved to the kingdom. And this is a huge, massive undertaking to build the temple. A hundred, let's say 160,000 people a month, and you'll get 20,000 doing whatever they're, and plus, plus the worker, plus the workers, for so for years, he's taken 165,000 people out of his labor, 175,000 people out of his labor for the kingdom, to build God's temple. He's investing in God. Okay, this is an investment he's making for God, and it's going to turn out to be one of the great wonders and, and huge investments. And then he says, the king commanded, and they brought great stones, costly stones, and huge stones. And these are precious stones. Okay, What kind of stone? Doesn't really tell us what, what is costly stone. Probably in the line of marbles and, and stuff, the, and granite. The, these were not, they weren't cutting limestone. They weren't, they weren't cutting real cheap, lightweight uh, stones. These guys were bringing in huge Stones and what they've told us in those in that in the te uh, tab, uh, temple was that those were big stones. Okay, how they move these things, I don't even know. I mean, they these things were large stones and they did not have cranes and trucks and and that material to move them. And yet they're going to move this stuff all over the place. They rolled it on trees. I would destroy the lumber, so I'm sure they didn't. Well, but they, had to roll it on they they did something. They did something to make it happen. And it says that Solomon's builders and Hiram's builder did hew and the stone quarriers, they prepared timber and stones to build the house. So a lot of people getting ready. Later on, we're going to read that there was not a hammer sound anywhere near the temple zone. They actually edged these out, formed them nice and clear outside for the rocks. Now, I don't know how they did it with the lumber. There had to be some lumbers being some nails. But I think he's talking about the chiseling, the chiseling of the, of the uh, rock. And they fit them so, so close together, so, so perfectly. These guys knew what they were doing to build this stuff and you know, build it outside, build all the work outside the temple area and send all this stuff into the temple. And he's got an army of people to cut and shape the... the the wood and cut and shape the, the stone and get ready to build God's temple. And he has a plan. Now remember, David is the one that made the plan. All right, David gave him a full set of plans. Here, 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 son, here's the building that I want to make. You know, Solomon gets the credit for building it, but Solomon, David was the one that planned it. David was the one that set most of the funds aside for it. Solomon just institutes the plans that David gets, and it's called Solomon's Temple. 
could just as easily have been called David's temple, even though he didn't get to build it. David's temple. David, Solomon's table designed by David. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but it is, the other interesting thing is when we read the dimensions of the temple, it is not the same dimensions as the tabernacle, which is what God said, build this the way I told you to build it. So there's some interesting things when we look at it. God's going to honor him. God's going to, his presence is going to fall upon the temple when it's dedicated. But it's not built to the exact specifications that the tabernacle was said to be built to. And so, and the new ones aren't, later on, aren't built to the same specifications that the tabernacle. And Moses was told very carefully by God, build this according to all that I tell you because it was a picture of the heavenly uh, throne room. And God says, this is the dimensions I want. This is what I want it to look like. This is what I want it to be like because when I look at it, I want to be reminded of what my throne room looks like. God the Father and Jesus sit on the mercy seat of heaven. And the mercy seat in the temple was a copy of, and a small copy of, with the cherubim, artificial cherubim with their wings over it instead of real cherubim. And the mercy seat sits over the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant holds the law, and the mercy seat sits over the law, and God says, mercy is more important than law. And so we see all of this coming down, but Solomon is saying, God, I'm going to honor you the best I can. I'm going to do the best job I can to honor your name, and God's going to honor that. You know, God will honor, when we have a heart to serve him, he will honor our limited service and say, all right, I'm going to take what I can, I'm going to take what you've got. I'm going to take what you're able to give. And it's very important that we understand that. God does not expect us to do great things, especially not without him, because he knows we can't. All he wants is for us to step out. Remember when the children crossed the Jordan River the priest had to step into the river. Okay, now we think, well, that's not too big a deal. Remember that the river was at flood stage. That meant the river was running hard. You do not step into a hard flood stage river and just step into it, and yet God said, okay, you've got to step in, and I'm going to stop the water. That takes faith. And they stepped in. Peter was said, step out of the boat. Come on out. You, you, said, you said you wanted me to, to walk on the water? Okay, take that step. Step out into the storm that you can't, step out in the water you can't walk on and step out into the storm that you don't want to be in in the first place and walk out to me. God tells us that all the time in our life. Step out into what seems like a total mess because he's told us to step out in faith. And then he does the work. We take the steps, he does the work. And this is important for us to understand that he is out there waiting, waiting for us to take that step of faith. And you know, we are always afraid to take that step of faith. Because if it was something we could do, it wouldn't be a step of faith. God, I am just waiting until you dump this money in my pocket so that I can go out and do whatever it is. And God says, uh, it doesn't work that way. You take the step of faith, 
then I will fulfill the work. And we need to be able to understand the steps of faith. And that doesn't mean be presumptuous, but it means pray and say, God, I really think you want me to do this. I'm going to step out and we're going to do it. We're going to step out and see God work. And that's all he's waiting for. And when we step out, he equips us. God, I could never do that. And God says, you're absolutely right. Step out in faith. Because if you could do it, it wouldn't be a step of faith and it wouldn't be a God work. God always calls us to do something that only he can do. Because if he didn't, it wouldn't be a God. If I step out and say, well, God, you know, I've got all this money in the bank and I can, I can do this for you. And God says, keep your money in the bank. I don't want it. You know, God, uh, I've got enough to start this, but I can't get it finished. And God says, oh, that might be a God-sized God's, God's plan. So we need to be praying, God, what is it you want me to do? Listen to his voice and then step out in faith. Step out in faith to do what it is. Because God has a plan. And he will give us the strength. He will give us the, the power. He will give us the abilities if we step out. We're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love care for us. Lord, teach us to be willing to step out for you. Teach us to be bold and watch you work. And we just thank you for all that you've done for us. And Lord, guide us. Show us what you want us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.